and welcome to the Fat-Tailed Thoughts podcast, where we discuss the makings of money, workings of crypto, and fintech. I'm your co-host, Stephen Dickens, and I'm joined, as always, by Jared Clee. Hey, Jared. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? I am very, very excited to get into this episode for the listeners. Of course, of course you are. You've been asking me to write about this for weeks. So for the listeners, you've not, we're on episode 20, which we both agree is frankly ridiculous. We're very, we decided to have a change of pace completely after last week. Tough topic for both of us to go through. Highly recommend you check it out. We went long. I didn't keep Jared to it. Well, I didn't fail to keep Jared to 30 minutes like I do every week. Um, we decided to just run and, and riff as long as possible on that topic. So Stephen, can I actually can I interrupt? Because I know you you've been doing last uh, for, for folks who haven't listened. Last week we talked about uh, the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, we concluded that uh, with with a brief discussion of what you can do. Um, one of the things Stephen's doing in the background here is is he has a close friend and colleague um, who's actually fled Ukraine and is providing housing and so on um, for for close family friends. Uh, Stephen's put together a GoFundMe on that, and and I believe Stephen, can you just give us Quick, quick update. What did you do? What's the situation on the ground? How, how, how is that working out? Yeah, so I've got a dear friend and former colleague, Oleg Fomin. Um, he was living in the U.S. His wife and kids were in Kiev. Um, they had to flee, bundled family and friends into a car, drove 500 miles to the Polish border where Oleg met them. Oleg's mid-level exec at IBM Um relatively well paid but certainly not in the top one percent or, or particularly wealthy and then gets to the polish border and decides let's go rent some hotel rooms put the f- people up in ends up renting five hotel rooms gets this what's now band of 16 people into cars gets them to berlin doesn't have the heart to stop renting the five hotel rooms because they're being used by people Guy's now burning probably a thousand bucks a day on his credit card. I speak to him on day two or three of the conflict where he's not slept for three days. I opine on social media about lots of topics. As you know from listening to this podcast, we always have opinions, like to joke around. I had to do something meaningful in start instead of actually just armchair commentary via social media. So set up a GoFundMe. We've now raised about eight and a half thousand dollars, which is going directly to Oleg, who is then using that to um, finance this band of probably now 20 or plus people that he's got in his care to feed and clothe them and put uh, and put a roof over their heads every night. So really tough situation. Glad I can be doing something, not saying to not um go and donate via other charities, please go and do that. But just felt I had to do something direct to help my friend out and, and the awful situation that he finds himself in with, with the group that's attached himself. Themselves yeah, and, and, to. and he's, he's, he's doing wonderful work clearly, Stevens, uh, as are you. And I just, I, I just want to highlight for our readers is uh, our readers and our listeners, as we talk about the ongoing situation, I think we all see the headlines. We see the news, we see videos on, on Twitter and whatnot of, of uh, the bombing of Kiev and, and, and the other cities. There's a really deep human element of this. 
And even amongst the horror, there are people doing, I mean, heroic and tremendous things, helping out their fellow citizens, their fellow humans. Um, it, it, it's critical that we highlight that. We, we keep in mind that any anytime something like this is happening, at the end of the day, it comes down to people like you and me and, and, and the listeners here. Um, and be able to, to lift them up to support them is, is really important. It's a, it's a wonderful thing you're doing, Stephen. Well, as I say, I had to do something. I like to be a man of action, not words. So just had to do something rather than use my social platforms to a point. So thank you for bringing, up, bringing it up. But pivoting back, to a, a more fun subject. It's back to been, this week. Bit of, a, bit of a break from the seriousness. Yeah, it's it's kind of tough to pivot, but... I spoke to Jared and we decided we'd hit a topic that's dear to my heart that gives us a complete change of pace and talk about Veblen goods. So new term, I wasn't particularly aware of it, although I've been a, a watch collector for the last 20 years. Saw it probably six, nine months ago. You and I have spoken about it, Jared. I think it's worthwhile talking about here because it throws on its head the typical price elasticity of the majority of goods and how markets operate. So I think let's try and discuss what is my favorite subject um, through that lens. And, and maybe let's get the listeners orientated here first and describe, describe what we mean by a Veblen good. So basic goods, basic when we think kind of your traditional microeconomics, if you've taken in, in high school or college, You've got a supply and demand curve, and, and as the price of something goes up, less of it is demanded. And, and that's true for most goods. Even if you wanted that thing, uh, we talked about this in the case of inflation, oftentimes you'll see what's called a substitution effect. So let's say you really like steak and there's some tolerance to, 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 to higher prices. Well, at some point, the price of steak is going to be absurd, and you say, you know what, I'll eat a little more chicken. You substitute out and demand for chicken will rise. That'll inevitably bring up the price of chicken, but it'll, it'll temper the rise in price of steak because the demand isn't going up as quickly. There's a whole class of goods called Veblen goods for which as the price rises, demand rises, meaning as the price goes up, people want more of it. And while that kind of sounds funny and it sounds a bit academic, we actually, if you get the word Veblen out of here and we get away from all the terminology, we all know what this stuff is intuitively. It's handbags, it's watches, it's the entire brand Supreme, it's luxury cars where because the badge is put on it, it costs more and the demand goes up. It's all these goods that we use to signal one another and say, hey, look at me, I'm rich, I'm successful, I'm sophisticated, I'm in the know, whatever it is we're trying to signal. And quite literally the price in this case is information. We are signaling because we paid that price, because we can pay that price, look at me. And where this gets super interesting is that means that there's a break point. There's a threshold price for these goods, wherein above that threshold price, it's really useful for signaling. But below that threshold price, it's not. It's just an ordinary good that anyone could obtain. So once, so you see kind of a normal demand curve at low prices. As the price goes up, demand falls. But at a, above a threshold price, as the price go up, goes up, demand rises. And we'll talk about some of the fun goods and, and what happens, but kind of the classic case here just to start is the brand Supreme. 
who's been selling cotton t-shirts that say Supreme across them for 300 bucks as a joke. They actually launched a Supreme branded brick, like a brick you would use to go make your house a red brick that sold for a couple hundred bucks a pop. <laughs> I mean, just because it says the word Supreme across it. So we'll get into this, what type of signaling, et cetera. But we're focused on those types of goods where as price goes up, demand goes up. And I think it's really interesting that you talk about signaling. We've now just offended most of the watch community who see themselves as collectors. And I think it's really interesting. There's and when you and my perspective and my time horizon over the watch community has been the last 20 years. I think when I started getting into watches 20 years ago, there was an element of signaling. You know, just for full disclosure, I own three Rolexes. Rolex is probably the most iconic brand and well-known. It has that perfect signaling sort of um, context that Jared's talking about. But when I bought my first watch in 2002, I was signaling to people who were within maybe 10, 15 feet of me and who recognized watches. When I now post about my watches on social media channels and I do this purely because I'm in this community and I'm interested to hear what other people have to say, I'm signaling to a lot broader audience. And I think that's a key dynamic that's changed this market in the last 10 years. And really, in the last five years, we've seen a whole brand, uh, sorry, a whole series of watch influencers, watch-based content. We've seen the rise of a dinky the last 10, 11 years, putting out content focused on watches. We've seen celebrities get into watches in a way that maybe they didn't before. And we've seen this whole market explode and feed off itself for some of the reasons that you just described, Jared, really in the last five years. And some of the price appreciation is frankly ridiculous from where it even was even two, three years ago. And that, that that's it, it's a critical distinction you're making, which is most of these goods start with what I'm going to call core community. They're, they're, for lack of a better term, they're the true believers for the most part, they're in it for a love of the good, whether it's in the case of watches, it's the mechanics for uh, a specific brand, uh, specific uh, fashion. It's because of how they look. Uh, we, we can for a car, it might be the mechanics or the history or so on. There, there's almost always this group of core believers, true believers who are in it for the good. What happens is you can actually build a brand around that, though, meaning the company that produces the good or somebody else who's able to co-opt it is able to take that brand and build a much broader, almost looser community around it who's not in it because of the some inherent quality in the good itself. They're getting in it because of the fact that it's useful for signaling. So, well, And we're also seeing a, a group of people attach themselves to that core community, what we call flippers, people who are buying this and treating it as an asset class. And this has led to some structural challenges, particularly in the watch community, about how these watches are sourced, who gets access to them, and how they're... And there's numerous cases of what's called authorized dealers, ADs. This is your 
non-Rolex-owned boutique or, or shop that's able to sell Rolex, as an example. So Rolex own their own stores called boutiques. Then there's authorized dealers. Maybe Watches of Switzerland is a great example that operates internationally that sells Rolex. How do they manage their allocation of this really in-demand item and who gets to actually buy them? And then how do so many of these turn up on the grey market for two, three, four x the price they were bought? But that's that's by design, and this is it. This it's talked two different aspects of this. There's one which is the community that grows around it, but but that actually is, for lack of a better term, that's curated by the brand. But that progression of community, you generally speaking, and, and stuff can evolve slightly differently from time to time. But you start with a group of core believers, true believers who are in it for some inherent quality of the good. They form a small community among themselves, and they're generally very enthusiastic about the thing. Then there's a group of people, as that community grows slightly, oftentimes the price will go up. There's a more demand for the same product, price goes up. There's a group of people that start glomming on to that. And they glom on because they go, oh, this is an expensive good. I can treat it as a luxury good and I can use it to signal. Great. Now you've got that slightly larger group here. There's a third group that gets tacked on which is the traders. They don't care at all about the good. In fact, they don't care at all about signaling for the most part. They're in it to buy low and sell high. And their expectation is, oh, I'm gonna see more people chasing signaling as the price goes up, which will allow me to ride that price going up. Now, where we'll get to eventually is this can also work in reverse. If the price starts falling, you kind of see an unraveling in the reverse direction here. Let's put that off for a moment. The fact of the matter is, this isn't. This doesn't just happen by chance. This type of rapid price appreciation and the and the growing of that community and the different motivations. This isn't like manias, panics, and crashes. This isn't always your traditional bubble that happens. More often than not, this is carefully curated by the brand in question. So one way of doing that is to get celebrity endorsements. Get a whole bunch of people. So in in the watch world, Jay Z is a big watch guy. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is a big watch guy. LeBron James is a big watch guy. This is not an accident by the brands. If you go watch any of the tennis tournaments, you've got uh, Federer up there with the Rolex. This is very, very carefully curated. If you'd like to be like Federer, like Leo, like whoever, buy the watch. So that's Well, it's really interesting you mentioned endorsements because there's two schools of thought here. You look at um, Tag Heuer storied company, fantastic back catalogue when they were Hoyer up until the mid-80s mid, uh, when they were bought by TAG. You look at the back catalogue of the Hoyers, as good as any watches made up until the 80s. TAG comes in, largely destroys a lot of that brand equity and a lot of that sort of... This is one of the five companies that invented the automatic chronograph back in 1969. This is a, a storied a company with the Monaco's and the Ortavias and the Monza's and multiple other brands and models in their range from the late 60s and early 70s as any other watch manufacturer. What they're now seen as a as a brand 
is a has-been that's largely over-exploited their brand through celebrity endorsements. You compare that against Patek Philippe, who doesn't care who you are, you can't buy one of their watches, and they don't do any celebrity endorsements and probably have got the biggest brand sort of appreciation. It's a really interesting nuanced space how this works. So I'm, I'm going to challenge that, though, because if, and, and I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but Pate Philippe, we'll get into the full story here, um, created a limited edition branded by Tiffany, et cetera, watch of which they created only 170. And while I hear you, endorsement is the wrong word here because they're not giving them away to the celebrities. Yet when you've only got 170, by the way, first way of, of launching a brand, raise the price, get celebrities. Second thing, reduce supply so that you restrict, it becomes exclusive. It's not good for signaling if it's just expensive. It has to be expensive. And you can't have one and I do. That is, I mean, talk about co-opting deep, deep, deep set emotions. That's keeping up with the Joneses. I've got it. You don't. That's great. Pate Philippe, of the 170, I mean, it's not an accident that you see Leo sitting on the side of an NBA game flashing his watch. It's not an accident that you see LeBron at the Super Bowl flashing that watch. Yes, it's not endorsed. But they did leave. They did put them on the short list of people that get to buy them, knowing damn well that they're going to show up in public with it on their wrist. Well, so, so let's expand here for the listeners. This is what's blown up in the watch space over the last three or four months. So let's get let's provide some context. Patek Philippe, one of the holy trinity of watches, largely considered by many to make the best watches in the world. You could argue that that's also. Um, Audemars Piquet, you could argue that's Vacheron Constantin, you could argue that Jaeger Lecoultre makes as good a watches. Regardless of where you fall on that continuum, Patek would be in the discussion. Long-standing company, collaboration with Tiffany in the US as one of the only, well, the only retailer that is able to co-brand their watches and put the Tiffany stamp on the dial's of Patek Philippe watches. Three boutiques in the world where you can buy them, sold by Tiffany. The Patek Philippe 5711, the hardest to get watch in the world, gets discontinued in the blue. This is a watch that Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank had to wait on a list to get, and it took him 10 years to get. So they don't sell. They don't care who you are. You're on the waiting list. Your number comes up. You get the watch. They discontinue the watch, which was a general release. Then launch a thousand-piece special edition with a green dial. The watch world goes crazy. Then they decide to celebrate the 170th anniversary of their collaboration with Tiffany by launching 170 of these watches on the Monday. On the Saturday, there's a charity auction where the watch watch manufacturing community typically creates one of one special editions that they then put up for charitable um, uh, auction. Patek puts one of the allocation of 170 up as part of the auction. We're talking about a watch that retails from Tiffany for about $55,000. The watch goes for $6.5 million 
after fees at auction. So there's some distinctions here and there's some nuances in what you said, Jared. Tiffany gets to decide who owns who's, who owns these watches, not actually Patek Philippe in this equation. So uh, there's a great Ed Sheeran interview on Hadinki's um, YouTube that I recommend you watch where they talk about this. He's got a long-standing history with the, with Patek Philippe, less so with Tiffany. He's not a jewellery buyer, wasn't able to get one of these watches. Probably the same with John Mayer, who's a, uh, a Patek Philippe collector. We haven't seen him wearing one of these Tiffany-dialed 5711s. So it's really a nuance within a nuance within a nuance within a nuance when you unpack the limited supply of 170 watches allocated by Tiffany with what was a $55,000 watch at retail, probably conservatively you're talking multiple millions of dollars in order to get one of these. We only know of one that's been sold, and that's the one that's sold for $6.5 million. Now, that's one of 170, so it's always going to carry a premium. But we've not seen any others hit the open market yet. There is a, the watch community is tracking these watches as they come out into the wild, and people are seen wearing them. And currently, I think we've only seen five or six, and they've been on Jay Z, they've been on DiCaprio. I think one of um, one of the other LeBron's got one. You know, it, it's it's very very few people who've both been invited by Tiffany's to to buy them and can afford to buy them. But I, I think the story you tell is, is, is spot on because it, it, it hits on so many aspects, including the nuance between it's, it, it's Pate Philippe versus it's Tiffany's market. It's their celebrities that they have access to. What, what we're looking at here, I mean, let's just go through the elements high level. We've got a we've got a celebrity flash LeBron. You want to be like LeBron, like and you can't have it, that emotional distance. But now you see all these articles online of, hey, would you like to buy a watch that's kind of sort of like this so you can almost be like them? It's it's the glomming on. Well, let's let's pick on that point. Let, let me well, come back to it. Let, so, let so, the, so there's a distinction there. Rolex have launched a Tiffany-colored watch dial, an Oyster Perpetual. No association with Tiffany. No, Not co-stamped. That watch retails for probably six or seven thousand dollars market price probably about fifty thousand dollars so halo effect from the patek philippe tiffany dialed on translating to another brand that has no association with tiffany just because tiffany blue is the cool color at the moment but this is an important distinction and, and you talk about with tag that Pate Philippe only makes 60,000 watches a year. In this case, they, they created 170 of these. Only one was available to be bought. The rest was by invite only list, bought by, by general public, rather. They create this want, this demand by dramatically restricting supply, whereas Rolex kind of plays a little looser. Yes, they restrict supply, but it's certainly much, much, much greater than the Pate Philippe of the world, and you go all the way down the spectrum to Tag, who had a storied brand for many, many, many years, you can, for the most part, walk into any store that, that retails them, and you can buy a watch that day. 
that that supply restriction, that quantity restriction, that ability to say I have it and you can't, not just that it's expensive. Tag hasn't played that game. So what you're looking at along the spectrum is Pate Philippe has played. They were founded in 1839. Tiffany was founded right around the same time. It's a 170 year partnership. They've built up this demand, this restricted supply, this community, this kind of heightened. I want it. I want it. I want it. No matter what the price, price goes up. It's even better now. It's been built over decades and decades and decades, and now they're 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 continuing to cash in on that, but deliberately doing it in incredibly restricted supply, so that they don't too materially impact the price and start reducing the value of the brand. Well, it's interesting you mention over decades, and you mentioned those these high end arguably all mechanical or automatic watches or the companies almost went to the brink and failed in the court what's known as the quartz crisis in the 80s so there's a reason why hoyer were bought in 1985 by tag one of the, the most storied watch brands of its time financially on the brink you look at zenith Zenith watches today only exist because somebody didn't want to sell the part, the uh, manufacturing templates and machinery, and hid it in the factory when Zenith was sold as a company to an instruments business, and and hid and closed off a door in a warehouse. So the stamps for those um, manufacturing devices, and I, I don't know how these things are actually made, but all of the templates for the movements and what is a f- storied movement, the El Primero movement that Zenith make, is now revived as a brand. This is a movement that found its way into the Daytona, the probably one of the most appreciating Rolex uh, products out there. So we're talking about relatively recent history. Yes, Patek can go back, as can Vacheron, as can Audemars Piquet, as can Rolex and Amiga and a lot of the other brands, and, and you know, 150, 200-year history. But we're talking about a lot of companies that almost went bankrupt in, 19, in the mid-1980s because Seiko, Tissot, these are the sort of companies flooded the market with cheap quartz-based movements, and they weren't able to keep up from a timekeeping point of view. So it's it's a really interesting market. And you talk about some of the brands there. You've got brands, and I mentioned Tag Heuer and Rolex. Those are kind of two ends of the scale. You've got brands like Amiga, where certain models in the range command a premium, a Speedmaster, a you know, very storied watch. Certain models in that range command a premium, but I can also walk into an Amiga boutique and buy ninety percent of their range just out of the out of the off the shelf. So it's 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 not even at a brand level; it's within particular models. So it's really fascinating to look at this space and look at the market and understand kind of what goes on here. I think. Well, it's again, it's it, it. What's what's so what's so critical here is these are not being done by accident. 
these are the brands as they came out of the eighties and they were struggling. They, they turn, they changed the model of let's create more of them to let's create less of them and create significantly more profit around each watch. And that means building a brand. That means you need James Bond, whoever's playing James Bond to show up with the watch on their wrist and so on. You start, you start curating this and Supreme just took this to the logical ex extreme of Let's take ordinary pedestrian commodity goods. Let's throw a label on it, price it, price it absurd, and then dramatically reduce supply. Now, they've played that game forward even more with, with drops where it's, hey, we're going to go live in six days time with exactly 100 of these first come, first serve. And they, they create this basically rush to the exits. Think, think your Black Friday at Walmart type scenario where everyone's competing over something that otherwise would you basically ring fence demand. So you have this huge spike in demand for a limited period of time. Nike has followed the same thing. I mean, we, we can get into the sneaker market here, but uh, Nike does the same thing with their drops. Adidas does the same thing with their drops. This, hey, we're only going to produce a couple for a limited period of time. And then you've got the Yeezys and so on that are co-branded with uh, take your pick of this celebrity. What gets built around this, and this is as we talk about how that community grows, first you get the people that that the, the true believers, then you get the people that that are seeing the price appreciation, so they want in and they want to signal because they want to be like Jay-Z or whatnot, but then you get the traders, the people that are just in it to flip it. And in order for that to work, you need to build secondary markets around this. And it's exactly what we see in the, in the sneaker world. We see StockX is the massive one here. We started to see this show up in the handbag space around, around your Chanel and your Gucci and your, your take your pick, uh, your D&G uh, handbags. We're seeing this, Stephen, where, where in the watch space are Chrono 24. So, I mean, I'm, I, I looked this morning and Jared and I talked about this before. So I own three Rolexes. Um, one of them, a GMT Master II that I was my first proper watch. I bought in two thousand and two. I bought for two thousand seven hundred dollars. According to Chrono Twenty Four, that watch has appreciated today by four hundred and sixty-seven percent to fifteen thousand dollars. So that's a second-hand watch. That's not a brand new watch. That's my watch, which means. The 467% appreciation. To compare that against the S&P, and Jared looked this up before the before the we recorded here, the S&P over the same period, 300%. I've got a Sea Dweller from 2005, up by 448%. I've got a Rolex um, 50th anniversary Submariner, up by 453% from 2007 so these are just crazy secondary markets and i'm able to get this data because a established well-run secondary market exists on chrono 24 those are the markets but chrono 24 have actually created a section within their app where i can put my watches in put what i bought them for and they give me a today's marketplace price so and, there's and enough data now to be able to build that secondary market and provide data against it. And, and that that's critical because what we're talking about, Stephen, is you're you're a, you're a buy these these watches hold forever. That there are things that 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 you'll give to your children and so on. But but at the same time, 
you nonetheless have an app on your phone where you're tracking the prices and getting excited and, and having fun with this. And that allows for an entire market of people to exist who are in it for exactly the opposite reason of you, which is, hey, I can get it for 15 and I think I can sell it tomorrow for 17. And I've got an easy, quick, low cost, convenient way of doing this. That drives that new type of demand, a demand who I don't really care that much about the good, except for the fact that I can buy it low and sell it high. That is net new demand. That's different demand than, than is inherent to the Veblen good. The Veblen good is I want to signal because it's expensive. This is, I want to buy at a high price and sell at a higher price. I don't really care what the good is. I don't care about signaling. That is net new demand of this market. But what's interesting is that drives up, that new demand drives up the price further, which makes the kind of the true believers and the people that are in it for the price to signal, it makes it even more valuable to them. So it inherently builds that community. And it again, the price is part of the value of the good. And then when you add on top of that Instagram, you add on top of that new media properties like Hadinki and Fratello and Teddy Baldassar and Jenny L and Bark and Jack, and you add on the YouTube community that reviews these, it builds on itself and it grows on itself. And this market tends to grow which segues us into our final topic, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited, so I'm not keeping track of the time as much as I normally do, listeners here, because this is my this is a topic I've been trying to get Jared to write about and talk about for six months. This is an asset class going forward is our final topic. Where do we see this? I've got a perspective. You've got a perspective as a, an observer of markets. I think it would be worthwhile sort of using that as a, a way to wrap us up and take us home here. So th this community cuts both ways. And, and what I mean by that is let's take a, let's take what is objectively, and I refuse to have any debate on the topic. Uh, the E-Type Jag is Jaguar is the greatest looking car ever made, period, full stop. There's no debate to have on the subject. But what's happened is, Jaguar has realized they, by the way, Jags are, despite us knowing the name and you, you see the, 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 the hood ornament and whatnot, they only produce a handful of cars a year. They're actually quite a small uh, manufacturer. They've realized in recent years with the demand for E-type Jags, which can go at new ones and the right models, et cetera, can go to auctions for millions. They've realized it's more profitable for them to go and release another five, another 10 E-type Jags, re-release old models than it is for them to try and sell 100,000 of whatever the new model is. So needless to say, they've gone and been re-releasing old Jags. Well, what does that do? If there's Aston only Martin's market, doing the same with DB5s. I watched a fantastic documentary on YouTube about exact recreations making another, I think it was 20 Aston Martin DB5s. Aston Martin's got the same thing because they only release a handful of cars a year. But what they're doing is they're, they're taking a universe. Let's say there are, there are 100 uh, mint condition E-type Jags in the world today. They release another 10. They've increased the supply in the market by 10%. The price falls. So what they're doing is they're playing a very, very dangerous game with the brand where this car is a Veblen good. Part of the value is the fact that it's expensive and you can signal to people. They're now flooding the market with new supply, which reduces the price. This isn't just linear of, of the, the price goes down, it's not as attractive. 
They don't know. Jaguar doesn't know. Aston Martin doesn't know where that threshold is, at which point this no longer becomes useful for signaling. And somebody's going to make an absolute mess of this and find themselves on the wrong side of that and absolutely wreck their brain. It's interesting, though. The dynamic here is Jaguar sold all of those cars probably in the late 60s, early 70s. The profit that they made and the revenue that they made is decades in the past. All of that price appreciation has happened on a secondary market where Jaguar gets nothing from it. The same with the Patek Philippe. Patek Philippe sell the watch to Tiffany. Don't know what they sell it for. Private company. We don't have it. We know the retail price was $55,000. let us say it's half that. 27000 Patek sells the watch to Tiffany for 27000 They're done. Whatever that watch sells for subsequently by um, Tiffany or on the secondary market is not profit, not revenue, has no relation back to Patek Philippe. So there's a whole dynamic here of the price appreciations happening oftentimes decades after the original sale by the, the person, who, the company that actually made these items. Correct. It's, it's one of those things, and, and I've deliberately avoided this, but, but the whole NFT space. I mean, we can make fun of dumb pictures of monkeys as profile pictures and so on, but one of the things that folks have been building into the smart contract behind the NFT is that the original issuer gets an ongoing fee as these skins get flipped and flipped and flipped again. And by the way, just to, just to be clear, NFTs are effectively, a, all they are is a signaling device. Hey, I spent a lot of money on a bad picture. Look at me. Now you get a community and whatnot that comes along with that, that grows over time. Initially, that's all there is. So, so I'm, 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 I'm inherently skeptical and, and let's differentiate asset class versus investment. Yes, it's an asset class. There's a lot of them and, and you can put a lot of money to work. As an investment, I'm inherently skeptical, and that that comes from a deep a deep down place of well, if the value of this thing only increases because more because the next sucker is willing to pay more than I was, that's there's no inherent quote unquote utility to the thing. Yes, you can wear it as a watch. Yes, you can use the handbag. Yes, you can wear it as a sneaker. Yes, you can wear that Supreme three hundred dollar t shirt as a t shirt, but is it really worth $300? Is it really worth 10? Now I can buy an equivalent good. If my goal is to tell time, I'm gonna go buy a $20 Casio G-Shock and it's gonna tell time better. But I'm buying this thing that tells time worse that's more expensive. So from a, a quote unquote investment standpoint, if you are a watch guy like Steven, if you're a watch guy and you love watches and you're excited about the community and you geek out over the components and you geek over how what's coming and how they, awesome, absolutely awesome. Buy it and enjoy it for what it is. If it happens to appreciate in price, fantastic. But do not buy things that that are that are effectively trying to hope that somebody is paying more that has that is way beyond its inherent value just for the purpose of price appreciation. You better damn well be happy because at the end of the day, that community can unwind, the price goes down, the brand gets abused, whatever. And when the price comes down, you're going to be left with the watch. And you better be damn excited about owning that watch at that point. Well, this is, uh, so Jared's entirely right. 
I'm a watch guy. Jared knows I've taken him watch shopping. I'm obsessed. Well, we, fact, we, we went watch looking. I didn't, we didn't quite watch get looking. me over the, the threshold of shopping. That will come, listeners. <laughs> I, will, I will get him. We're talking about there's everything you'll see. There's watch charts. There's really good market data that didn't exist two or three years ago. Words of caution. In my lifetime, this industry almost went bankrupt. Yes, I'm almost 50. But in my lifetime, this what this community almost went bankrupt. Fantastic watches do not always appreciate. I have a Breitling Chronomatic. It's an iconic movement, caliber 11. It was one of the five brands and one of actually the five watches where the automatic chronograph was invented. I bought this watch probably 10 years ago. It's in fantastic condition. It's hardly gone up in the last 10 years, and you can trace its history to one of the most iconic moments in watch manufacturing. I've also bought other watches that have crazily gone up in value just because they have a green bezel rather than a black bezel. This market is not a place to invest large amounts of money. I have, but I'd like these watches, I don't treat it as an investment. Be very careful about treating a market that has only got maybe five years of ridiculous price appreciation as a long-term investment vehicle. Rolex makes a million watches a year. It's a private company currently. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean it's always going to be a private company. And it doesn't mean that in 15 years' time it can't have been bought by the equivalent of TAG and turned into something completely different. Be careful about treating this as a investment. If you like collecting things and you want to own them for a long time, peace, great, enjoy it. I do. Careful about this as an investment class. Couldn't say it better. As I say, I made this one run long because I'm really interested in this topic. You've been listening to the Fat-Tailed Thoughts podcast. Please check us out and subscribe. Go check out the newsletter. Jared does a fantastic job of putting an amazing newsletter out there on Substack. We'll put a link in the show notes. Please share this with your communities. Check us out on YouTube or on your uh, podcast platforms. Click and subscribe. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Fat Tail Tours podcast.